Sup loads of pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we are back in 1995 after our brief uh, stopover with Mazza last week looking at uh, the, the decades of the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, we are going to be looking today at In Your House 3, triple header, uh, which is of course featured one of those bizarre main events where you got the tag belts and the IC and the WWF title all up for grabs in the same match, but also people that aren't in the match being in the match and people that were <laughs> supposed to be in the match turning up at the end of the match <laughs> to be pinned. So it's, it's, it's funny when you, when you look at, um, when you look at WWF history, WWE history, about once every five years, they do one of these matches with these very odd rules. Like they even did one pretty recently with, um, with Becky Lynch, uh, Seth Rollins, Corbin and yeah. uh, Lacey Evans. They just can't, they can't help themselves sometimes, but to have one of these sort of clusterfuck, every title ever is in this match. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I quite like the match. We'll get to it, I'm sure, as we as we go along here. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that, to my knowledge, this is the first time they've done it on pay-per-view, at least, I think. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, they would they would perhaps more famously go on to do it with the two-man power trip. Um there's one for your Mazza bingo uh, in in 2001. Uh, so uh, you know, in that sense, again, you have new gen being being quite oddly precognitive of uh, of things to come and, and trying new ideas and trying new ideas in quite a risky way. But you know, as, as glib as we may be about the manner in which events play out, I think they pull it off. I think it's an entertain, entertaining main event, feels dramatic, uh, and uh, helps position. British Bulldog, who has a great night, as, as I'm sure we will <laughs> going on conversation we've had in the last week get to in, in short order, um, positions him to go on to have what would be a major, major role in the rest of the era in a role that doesn't get anywhere near talked about as much as it should as essentially for a long time the the top heel in the company. I think, it, like you say, it's a, it's it's an awfully fun match, and they absolutely pull it off. You know, because essentially they play it completely straight. They don't they're, they're not apologetic about what they do. They just it's the story of the of the night that Owen Hart can't be found, so they have to come up with an alternative plan. And Gorilla Monsoon obviously isn't going to let Jim Cornette get away with the you know with the belts not being defended, and so he he gives him this compromise. Um, so it's a great use of a backstage authority figure to say, no, you're, you're not going to forfeit the match. You're going to have to have it. Um, I will let you for one night find a partner. And then, of course, you get those great cut scenes um, during the matches where Jim Cornette is trying to talk to various people. And, of course, he comes down on Bulldog, who had beef with Diesel from the TVs leading up to this. And, of course, uh, had been in a one-two with Michaels at the Rumble. So the whole thing actually comes together and, really, really nicely. And as you say, as a newly minted heel, it gives Bulldog a lot of momentum to be that top guy moving forwards um, you know, the, the rest I, of the year. I, just to make a quick point on a little context here, the, the Bulldog heel turn, you're right, comes at the expense of Diesel on TVs. Um, and it's one of those curious instances where... I think I might have mentioned this in a distant, in a pond in the distant past, where one simple switch like that suddenly makes the entire product click. Uh, 95, obviously, famously, you know, seen as as lukewarm, and while we're, we're we are, you know, doing this series to very actively combat that idea, I think it is worth saying that it does. The product does seem to come alive again and, and get reinvigorated the minute that they decide to turn bulldog uh, in in a in a because he, he slots into a role that feels like it needed occupying somehow and it was it was weird when you watch it sort of in the context of sort of just watching through the era because you're sort of not really aware that there's a gap there for for someone like bulldog to come along and fill as a heel but the minute that he does fill it you're like that's what things were needing you know it was needing that extra that extra threat because the wonderful thing about bulldog of course and again we'll see this through the night of this event uh, and it, it's again something i mentioned many times here on the pond is that 
he was the ultimate bad guy for the era because he was as technically proficient as Brett. He was as athletic and as fast as Shawn Michaels, and he was as powerful uh, and as strong as Diesel. So, you know, you had all of the key elements to the top three competitors rolled into a single package that meant that it didn't matter who you pitted Bulldog against, he had some kind of leverage over them. You know, he was stronger than Sean. He was faster than Brett. He was more proficient technically than Diesel. He had an in against whoever you pitted him against, and that's what made him so brilliant a, a bad guy. You know, in an age where the emphasis was on the ring content and the intelligence of the ring content, you had the ultimate bad guy in Bulldog. I think the the best heel turns always come about from a sense of need and as you say there was a you know there was a slot that had been vacated and of course it had been vacated by Michaels really when you think about it like the 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 Michaels face turn had kind of vacated one of the top heel slots and they had True, to really yeah. ad- adequately filled it yeah um, and also I think with Bulldog like he had such a clear motivation for turning heel which is again it's essentially something which again they've done many times before and since but this is a you know a sort of upright workhorse guy that didn't really get any opportunities like he went from main eventing SummerSlam to you know essentially being forgotten about um and that's kind of part of the motivation for what he decided to do and for joining Camp Cornet um it's 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 strange to think about it's strange to think about um there's there's a few little parallels there with what they would do with Brett between '96 and '97, isn't there? You know, yeah. this guy this guy seemingly wins a Royal Rumble but gets shafted out of it at the last second. Uh, goes relatively unrewarded by the company in spite of some incredible performances in the ring, in spite of being one of the top competitors. You know, it turns his back and and carries a, a sense of um, a bitterness and being owed something. I mean, there are, it's, it's, it's light, you know, it's not necessarily the, the clearest comparisons there, but there are a few interesting parallels to be had. It is reality, isn't it? Oh, quite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, Jen, you, Jen invented the reality here. There you go, folks. <laughs> it kind of did with this, I think, but, but yeah, and hell, on the same, on the same show, it invented attitude as well with the clusterfuck main event. So there you go. I mean, this is the thing: is whenever you look, whenever you look back through um, wrestling history, you'll find that lots of things that you think didn't happen till later had actually happened, you know, <laughs> a fair bit beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's it's a through the night story, which we're always a big we're always big fans of. Um, and Bulldog pulls double duty, which again we are always big fans of. And it's a bit of a new gen theme, that isn't it? I mean, Brett pulled double duty in your house one. Uh, King Bulldog, of the Ring ninety three. Yeah, Bulldog does here. Um so it's very much a very much a thing. Um so the show itself, I actually really I really enjoyed um feels a bit meatier than some of the other in your houses yeah. we've looked at so far. It seems to be sort of finding its feet as a entity. You know, we've got um, you know, six you know, pretty good matches here with a couple of quite lengthy mid card efforts in the middle. Um, as well as the main event, so it feels like quite a substantial show. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're back to rights. I think it's. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's in your house quite coming of age, but I'm not sure where I would place that. Um, maybe, maybe good friends, better enemies, perhaps. But um, it certainly feels like, as you say, a more robust show than the, than the first two, and it feels like they're getting a little bit less. Uh, or a little bit more enthusiastic about booking big matches for these in-your-house pay-per-views rather than kind of just maybe perhaps treading water until the next or setting up the next big four pay-per-view main event um, or big five, I suppose. Um, Yeah. And you also, I mean, when you get into the the kind of the granular detail of it as well, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, occurrences that play into the wider themes of the era as well. and you get, uh, I mean, you get another, you know, hipster Bret Hart classic that nobody ever talks about. We've already mentioned the main event. Um, you get some real showcases of the kind of, um, you know, perhaps the primary myth that we've been combating, which is this idea that somehow New Gen wasn't about supreme athletes when it was in the form of uh, Bulldog and Bam Bam. You get some characters that seem to be predicting 
characters that would come much later, like Waylon Mercy. Uh, you know, you get certain elements of, of the click there with Dean Douglas and Razor Ramon. So there's, there's um, you know, thematically, it's a very uh, uh, useful event to go back and watch as well. So uh, a lot going for it, really, I think. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a very enjoyable show to, to sit and revisit. Um, it's funny, actually, because I'd watched a couple of these matches relatively recently before we did this series. Like, I'd watched Dean Douglas v. Razor Ramon for some reason. Don't <laughs> I don't remember why I watched that, but, but I'd watched that relatively recently beforehand. And uh, Brett and uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, obviously, like it's one of those ones that you, you revisit once a year or so because it's just such a classic. Um, but yeah, so uh, let's start with Savio Vega and Wayne and Mercy. As you say, Wayne and Mercy essentially Bray Wyatt before Bray Wyatt was Bray Wyatt. Um even down to the, I mean, I, in fact, I think I'm pretty sure I saw an interview with, you know, uh, Wyndham Rotunda, where he explained that actually Waylon Mercy was a bit of a starting point for the Bray Wyatt character. So there you go. Well, there are, you know, there are clear parallels there. I mean, I wouldn't put as much stock into those parallels as I've seen some other people um do i think it's mainly a visual and tonal similarity more than anything else certainly there's nothing supernatural about Wayland mercy and i think that um while the ring work is decent um you know he, he never really does anything particularly sparkling for his stint as Wayland mercy in, in this company so um but you know it's it's an interesting i guess it's a point of interest let's call him um and you know, I mean, it's not uh, just looking back at some historic notes I have of it. It doesn't read like it's because I haven't unfortunately had the chance to check it out again um, prior to his recording the show. But I don't remember it being a particularly great effort. I don't think it's quite as fun as, say, the one, two, three kid roadie match that we talked about uh, recently. Um, but, you know, it's again, it's that point of interest about Whaler Mercy and it's Savio Vega continuing to establish his uh, role on the roster as well. Uh, you know, is that I guess supporting act, let's call him, uh, that he's been since he first turned up with a basically a strong kind of established foundation for him to then just be a, a common feature on on pay per view cards, and that's the kind of robust roster positioning that there should be more of. Yeah, quite. Um, they're obviously introducing the new the new ish character by having him, you know, go over a, you know, a sort of a a solid mid carder really, which is a time honored thing. I thought the match was, was kind of fine. Um, as you say, when a mercy never actually ends up doing anything particularly significant, but, um, certainly like that kind of a character had some mileage. Um, because think, obviously it came back a bit later as Bray Wyatt. Well, quite. Um, and I think inspired by, uh, Cape fear, the film Cape fear, Robert De Niro's character in that, but, um, the the other thing I'd mention about it, and it's not really to do with the match, but it's, you know, they waste no time. We've already talked about the story that runs through that. They waste no time in establishing that. You know, first match on the card, we're already hearing that Owen Hart's not in the building. Um, and so, you know, the show started, the, sto- the, the sort of the central story started at the same time. Yeah, I really, I really like Jerry Lawler's growing panic. <laughs> I've seen Owen. I'm sure he's here. <laughs> As it's like, because you know, it's just like desperate, uh, you know, desperate for uh, Diesel and Sean to be uh, to be shown up, which is which is great. Um, okay, so next match we've got is again this growing theme that you've mentioned a lot of times about Ted DiBiase and yes. his fight against. Uh, against basically being humiliated or, or, or made to look silly um, and his kind of obsession with prestige because, of course, we have Henry Godwin's uh, introduction um, and his slot bucket becomes quite a prominent antagonist um, in this this match and this storyline. And, of course, Sid wins the match, as you'd expect, like main eventer against a you know lower mid-carder. You'd expect, you'd expect that to happen, but then... You know, they get the uh, the cheap laugh out of Dibios's Armani suit being covered in the slop at the end of the match. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a wonderful. I, I have such a lot of love for this narrative that that plays out during his stint as as a manager in in New Gen because it's so simple and and it's not. You know, I'm not even sure that W 
that the company is aware that they're kind of building this arc for him, um, you know, rather than just sort of treating him as the character he is, you know, it, the arc builds itself and said that on the show before, you know, you, you write three dimensional characters and the stories will take care of themselves a lot of the time simply by asking, well, what makes sense for this person to do or for the, to happen to this person that's exactly what you get um and it's you know i mean it's got it's got a nice little um psychology to it with with godwin's back um but it's it's um you know coming off of a off of it because of course sid was a proficient user of the power bomb um but yeah i mean it's it's it is what it is but again you know we banged on about this time and again since we've been doing this series which is and we've you have time to get on the pond generally, which is understanding that you're watching a show. You're not watching match after match after match. You know, it's got to hang together. Yeah. You're watching a whole thing and, and, you know, getting little matches like this that have a, have a little bit of, of a thing to say, i.e. in this instance, as you mentioned, the slot bucket and stuff, they're not instant classics. They don't need to be instant classics. So they're there to, to help make a, a more synergetic whole. That's what makes these in your houses is, is having these contrasting, uh, matches that some of which are pretty unsuspecting and, and interested only in telling a quaint little story for a decent amount of time. And that's all I need to be satisfied for, you know, a few of them mixed in with a few great matches. That's what you would call in very loosely defined terms, a good wrestling show. And, you know, people get very um, caught up in this uh, occupation gimmick um you know, slur with, with, with the new gen. And yes, Henry Godwin is a pig farmer, but like, it's not just a, a gimmick. It's, it's a character. And, you know, they make it, they make it work because of the commitment that they have to that character. And, you know, the, the sort of the, the use of the slot bucket and the, the way in which, um, as a blue collar, worker he's there to show up you know the people that are a bit above themselves and actually when you find you know the sorts of feuds that henry godwin's in i mean he obviously has that the most famous ones with hans hurst elmsley he's there to wait to talk about that he's there to show up uh all these kind of rich people that think they can look down on the uh on the working class which is a great narrative so you know, it works. It's not like like I've just gone. Let's have a hog farmer, uh, and then that's it. You know, they've they've actually really thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is on the nose. Henry O. Godwin. You know, he's a hog farmer, and he shouts <laughs> suey, and his uh, music is is country bumpkin music, um, for want of a more elegant phrase. But um, you know, and they stick to the whole slot bucket thing. But like you say, you know, there's 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 it's the way that they use that. It's the way that they write that. It's the way that they deploy that that makes sense and makes it so rewarding. Um, and, uh, you know, in this instance, yeah, I mean, a reductive take would say hog farmer slops million dollar man. Uh, but you could take almost any wrestling and be that reductive with it if you wanted to be, you know, just like you could almost take any wrestling and, and, and look into its merits with a little bit more depth. And I think if you do that with this, you get something that's really quite rewarding and very, very much rooted heavily in character. People say that's what they want. Here it is for the taking. Yeah, quite. Um, and, you know, I mean, just a, as a sort of a aside, um, when, when me and Maz did Attitude, we really enjoyed the Godwins' reinvention as uh, Southern Justice, uh, the bodyguards oh, yeah. for uh, for Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> Absolutely worked a treat in that role. So they're actually underrated workers, both the Godwins, I always thought. Well, they, were, they went on to become um, a, a, a big cornerstone of um, the tag team division. And that may sound like being damned by faint praise when it comes to new gen, but, um, you know, along with Sonny, again, they told an, you know, they told a, a, a fun story with Sonny where, where Phineas was obsessed with her and she manipulated him in a sociopathic way, uh, to make sure that she was still manager of the champions. And when the time came switched over to another team, you know, so even there you've got, you know, you've got stuff about, um, not necessarily blue collar workers, but people who might be seen as uh, as social outsiders being manipulated by narcissists 
who value beauty and you know the point that i'm trying to drive at is that there's there's meat there there's character depth there and there's thematic depth there for you to drill into if you want a new gen has that perhaps i think in 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 greater quantities than almost any era because of how tightly knit the characters character arcs were uh, and how well rounded and well developed the characters were as well you know and and the rest all comes from that yeah no absolutely i agree i would agree entirely um so on to a match that i thought was an absolute hipster classic stone cold brilliance really uh which was uh, <laughs> and that's all you've got to say about that yeah but it was a british bulldog against bam bam bigelow um and obviously you know you see that on paper and you think that looks fantastic and then you watch it and it's exactly what you wanted out of it like two athletic big men uh just going at it some great near falls in there and you know seeing bulldog pick up bam bam and be able to hit his you know hit that running power slam finisher on him is unbelievably impressive it's um I, again, I haven't had a chance to rewatch the show, so I haven't got the, the strongest memories of it, if I'm being honest. But uh, what I would say is that it feels like not necessarily a torch passing moment or anything like that, but it but it feels like Bulldog is something, as a performer, of a spiritual successor to Bam Bam. In the sense that Bam Bam was, was of a similar ilk, wasn't he? He was a, he was a big guy, you know, incredibly strong but also very agile known to be nimble known to be athletic known to be well conditioned um like i think night four rumble he's in there for a good 30 40 minutes or so um and so it feels a bit like sort of we've already talked about bulldog occupying that slot as a top heel from a kind of moral uh, morality dynamic but um from the dynamic of kind of uh style of performer it feels like he's he's now stepping into the slot that someone like bam bam may have occupied in years earlier which is that you know prominent top tier guy uh who was a, a well-rounded and 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 surprising in a number of departments um almost a subversive performer of a of a type uh which is an an interesting uh interesting thing to consider and like you say just the fact that this match exists a british bulldog versus bam bam Bigelow, you would have to not know a considerable amount about wrestling to not be excited by that prospect and given that you know they were trying to establish bulldog um you know as a new top heel i mean what better person for him to be you know you look at bam bam's 1995 thus far you know he's had the uh you know the sort of the the tag team run alongside Tatonka. Then he's had the uh, the match with LT, which obviously was a big humiliation. He's had the revenge arc against Sid and and DBRC. Um, and you know, and he's being used here as 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 kind of enhancement talent. I'm kind of put in mind of a little bit Samoa Joe, the mm. use of Samoa Joe in the latter day, mm. um, particularly with Roman Reigns, like that sort of a a role. Um, is what we seem to see with Bam Bam here, and I, and I think it's obviously something which is always needs in wrestling is a you know a convincing, uh, convincing big guy who you can, you know, use as enhancement when you need to. I think that's a really good shout. Actually, I never thought of that comparison before, but I think it's it fits wonderfully. Um, I think this may even be the last time Bam Bam appears on pay per view for them. Uh, I know he's not on the next in your house, so it's whether or not he's at Survivor Series or not. But I think it might be his last, his last pay per view appearance for him. And if it is, like, what a what a great little match to go out with, um, and it's and and it would almost, um, it would almost be be the perfect ending because, as you say, he's gone through these different arcs, and it does feel a little bit like the character. Without wanting to sound disrespectful to him, I'm a huge fan of Bam Bam, but it feels a bit like the character is sort of its purpose has come to an end. So what do you do? You use him to bolster, you know, the the uh, the the reputation, the sense of threat elicited by your newly minted villain in the British Bulldog. So, um, you know, of course, another new gen speciality there: logical booking. <laughs> well, yeah, quite well, I mean, and we see that in the in the next match as well because, um, you know, we saw the Dean Douglas Razor Ramon um, match get sort of set up. 
at SummerSlam uh, beforehand. Um, and, you know, again, it's just such a, a, a sensibly worked match in terms of the characters of the two men, um, you know, with uh, the Dean trying to be this, you know, cerebral type of uh, go after the knee, you know, chop razor down and you get the kind of the razor sort of power and charisma and bravado shining through as well. And then they cap it all off by having uh, Kid and uh, and Razor fall out, uh, which is obviously mm. a part of their larger arc as well. They have a, a number of uh, matches on Raw, one in particular uh, that Doc and I wrote about when we did our top 50 matches of New Gen series on LOP, uh, where... Um, Razor sort of beats Kid three, t- <laughs> keeps beating Kid, and Kid keeps getting up and saying, "Let's go again." And Razor just keeps beating him, which is, um, it's a really fun, uh, fun encounter that they have, and the, the the tension between them. It's an interesting thing because the tension between them boils over a number of times before sort of the fully fledged heel turn comes, um, and it's kind of fueled by a sense of Kid not wanting to be patronized by Razor anymore. But um, doesn't Kid count the three count in this match? Yeah. Or- or tries, which I've always found very odd. Yeah, very odd. Uh, it comes across as odd, but it's kind of like... The way they play it is, is if he runs in not really knowing what he's going to do, and um, he ends up, like, remonstrating with Razor after this botched attempt to be the ref, and uh, when the real ref gets up and is like, what the hell, and then Razor's like, oh, what are you doing? Then Dean Douglas rolls Razor up. And then after the match, Kid actually hits Razor with a spin kick and is like, I'm not going to be bullied by you. So that's kind of what starts the whole thing off, really. Fantastic. Nuisance Waltman. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think Bob Backlund introduces Dean Douglas as well, right? Yes, that's right. And, it, and a, there's a great one of those great Bob Backlund lines in there. I'm not going to let you elucidate me. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because it's, it's again, another instance of how in tune New Gen was with its characters because Bob Backlund had, um, the preceding year, obviously had a, a, a tremendous run as a as a heel, as the top heel for some time, where they built up his chicken wing crossface as this deadly finisher. Um, and uh, a large portion of that, uh, in, a, in a moment with, with wonderful symmetry with what would happen with Bret Hart in 97, incidentally, uh, is him re- railing against, you know, the current generation of wrestlers and the youth of today um, and kind of taking that, that moralistic high ground. And here he is sort of siding with Dean Douglas, who isn't quite the same, but has the same, carries the same sense of... The contempt of su- for yes, people. Yes, yeah. contemptuousness and, and superiority towards others and, and um, you know, the worst kind of intellectual. Uh, and... So it makes perfect sense that Bob Backlund as a character would gravitate towards Dean Douglas because Dean Douglas represents everything Bob Backlund has been ranting for two years now about um, that he thinks that the youth of today and and wrestlers of today should be more like. And it's just little, you know, little uh, sort of touches like that. It's a pond cliche at this point um, that help build that sense of shared universe and help build that sense of these characters all existing in the same space. Uh, it doesn't have to happen all the time. You know, I wouldn't want it to happen all the time. Um, it's not Aiden English introducing Rusev because we need something for Aiden English to do. It's Bob Backlund introduces uh, Dean Douglas because the two characters would naturally gravitate towards one another. Um, and as you say, you know, I mean, when you get Douglas and Ramon in the ring, it's going to be never anything less than reliable. And when you start to have these sort of character flourishes as well like they do with with the one two three kid it helps make everything mean a little bit more as well so uh yeah again it's just new gen firing on on all cylinders doing what it does best um and another instance of a match that just helps contribute to the to the wider synergy of the show and also like i just thought that you know this kid incident and the and the whole thing it kind of plays out as like a minor version of owen and brett in a way okay yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, even down to like kids' initial run-in. Like, is it because he wants to help Razor, or is it because he's jealous? And they kind of play on the, they kind of play on the uncertainty of that. 
I mean, the wonderful aspect of their relationship, Razor always had a sort of um, elderly brother attitude towards Kid. I'm talking about the characters. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the wonderful thing about it is it's only logical that eventually Kid would start to feel patronized because, of course, the foundation of their relationship is built on the presumption that Kid had no business beating Razor Ramon that night on Raw in 1993 so there's there's from the very beginning their relationship has been defined by a certain kind of unspoken sense of uh difference between how they perceive one another's value um as if there's more respect from kid to razor than there is from razor to kid so there's the longer it goes and then as this tension starts to ramp up as you say at the back end of 95 and spill over when kid joins the million dollar corporation um because again, of course, that's something that the million dollar man would want to try and get his hands on it. An athlete like kid and to manipulate that relationship, sort of dig his claws and he sees a chink in the armor of that relationship. And he just, uh, you know, just carves it open kind of like triple H Seth Rollins and, and Dean. Um, uh, it feels like it was always going to end sour because of the way that that relationship was was born in the first place, and that's that's the wonderful thing. And you can easily see the cause and effect again over over the course of years. The arc is uh, another one that is sublime in how synergetic it is as it plays out across the era. Yeah, no, in- indeed, and like you say, they have such a great sense of knowing who these characters are and how they relate to each other within that ecosystem um that they're able to build these kind of long-term stories in mm. you know and characters like dean douglas who kind of um you know kind of come in and then come out of the situation you know just have their lasting impact on the more long-lasting characters which is you know how it should be in any sort of fiction really yeah i agree entirely um similarly you know bret hart's quest to get his leather jacket back uh, <laughs> from uh, jean-pierre lafitte who of course uh you know is a uh, a pirate and what do pirates do they they steal custom-made leather jackets made by brett's mum um <laughs> i have a sneaking suspicion you're being deliberately reductive <laughs> no like it's it well, i mean obviously i um as you've said many times like brett's sense of honor uh manifests itself in all sorts of of small ways and we saw that with the determination to beat lawler because Lawler humiliated him when he'd, he'd, don- uh, he'd dedicated a to his mother. And here, uh, a garment made for him by his mother is is then sort of stolen by a uh, piratical Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Um, and Brett's determined to get it back. So it, right, it, it and, definitely works. And the... the I mean, what's not to like, right? You've, you've, you've established in the recent history, A, as you say, Brett's sense of honour, but also B, Brett's... Um, affection for his mother from the Jean-Pierre Lafitte perspective the way that they build that character is that he's a descendant from some famous pirate I think you had the name Lafitte Uh, and so it's not just that he's stealing things it's that he believes he's owed it he believes that it all belongs to him anyway because of his ancestry um kind of a corny idea i'll accept but still it's again it's it's got a sense of character to it and a sense of of robust continuity to it and look you're not telling me that if you um the royal you speaking to anyone out there in the youth listening have a a possession that was gifted to you by a family member that you are deeply affectionate about and someone stole it that you wouldn't be pissed off about it of course you would you know, so I, we live in this age now, and we have for so long, where where wrestling has began to operate in a kind of um, a, a sphere of grand stakes and grand fiction, that it does. I can understand feel odd to have something as uh, as low key and as low stakes uh, as fighting over a leather jacket. But it's perfectly realistic that that someone would be pissed off if they had something that they were affectionate about, a treasured item of their stone, and especially if it was gifted to them by a family member, because we would all be annoyed in that kind of situation. So it's important for us not, I think, to lose perspective um, just because we're on the other side of an age of hysteria now where everything has to be mega high stakes all the time uh, and has operated in that sphere for so long, historically speaking. Um, What's most important of all, though, I think, is that the the basic concept behind it is 
sold home, and you were talking about this with the main event earlier, is pulled off because they sell it totally straight, and the match is so aggressive. It's wrestled so aggressively by both sides of the equation that you genuinely believe that it's a high-stakes situation, regardless of how low stakes it is. Now, I'll pull in a very odd reference, but it's a contemporary one. Um, on Netflix, they did a... I don't know if it airs in America or not. I think it does. But they did a series about the royal family called The Crown. And I don't know if you've ever watched it, Mav, but it's a, the bizarrest show because you'll have entire episodes that build drama around who the Queen's going to pick as her next assistant, right? Absolutely means totally nothing at all. But it's well-written as a show, and the characters are well-written enough that it pulls pulls it off and it sucks you in, and you're, you're part of the drama. It's exactly that kind of phenomenon that happens here. Yes, it may seem curiously low stakes, but the characters believe in what they're doing. The characters are passionate about what they're doing. And so the story comes off that way and you're pulled into it as a result. You know, it's this, I guess, is a case in point of, of how our the way we engage with wrestling has changed over the years. You know, about how now we sort of we sort of think a bit more in a detached fashion about what we're watching rather than immersing ourselves as a part of the story. Yeah, no, indeed. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really love the fact that in the match, the first thing that Brett does is kind of pummel Lafitte uh, outside the ring uh, and, and then he takes the jacket back. Yes, yeah. Uh, so straight away, you know, the motive for the story is, uh, you know, is kind of within the match itself because, you know, he makes sure that he's got the jacket and then the match can start. Um, I think it was. I think it was. It it might have been Prime Time who told me this, that um, that Brett apparently. I didn't know this, but apparently, if he didn't, if he wasn't going to be a wrestler, wanted to be a, a movie director, which is probably helps account for this incredible sense of storytelling that he always had. And I think that's a great case in point. You know, to have that little touch right at the start is, I think, something that would probably go over a lot of wrestlers' heads today. It feels like. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's just that thing where, you know, if you grew up with wrestling as a um, incredibly complex storytelling organism, uh, it's very difficult for you to, to see it become something which is just sound bites and matches, mm. uh, which is which is where it is now. Whereas, I guess, people that haven't grown up um, with wrestling as a, a, a complex uh, into, you know, into sort of woven organism uh they just want matches with lots of moves in i suppose um which isn't what i want out of pro wrestling goodness knows quite yeah absolutely um i mentioned the the physicality of it i think it's worth driving that home it's an immensely physical match brett bumps like a champion in it like it's 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 bone juddering some of the stuff that he's doing in it the aesthetic of it um and I just wanted to drive that home because it, it plays into, again, you, you, the Ted DiBiase thing we mentioned, but another one I banged on about a lot since we've been doing this series is the growing aggression of Brett as a, as a competitor uh, and how much more sort of unashamedly aggressive he is in the ring. And I, again, this feels like another big jump forward in, in that regard as well for him because he, he does come off as, no pun intended, uh, quite cutthroat. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Brett, when he had that fire in him, um, you know, he had this real um, sense of of kind of uh, righteous fury. And it's interesting in this match, in a way, you can see a fair amount of similarities with the Austin match, Mm. Um, particularly how it starts. Which one? Which Austin match? The the WrestleMania 13. Yes. Yeah, the way. Yeah, the way that it starts here you know he's he's kind of it's it's all kind of around the ring uh before they actually get in the ring and once they do you know as you say it's very physical it's very intense um and you know as as was often the case when it was a particularly heated feud you know brett wins with a sharpshooter here and he keeps it on you know almost to the point of being disqualified so you know that's quite an interesting little bit of foreshadowing and i think sort of as as a point on this um i guess before we move on you think about, and I must have, I must have, when I wrote, I'm just looking, basically I'm looking at some historical notes I have on this, and I must have watched it around WrestleMania 31 time, because I've written here, 
although it's all over a jacket, there's more story here than that dumb IC thing at Mania 31. Um, and I thought I'd mention, I thought I'd bring that up because I think it stands to reason, um, you know, that these days it feels very much like one of you, you get one of two things. You either get uh, feuds that have gone on forever with no story at all. Um, or I guess in the case of, of WrestleMania's going on the point that I've just made, uh, you know, kind of clusterfucks to get people on cards. Or you get instances of, say, for example, the women's triple threat mania this year that are so overwritten, so overbooked, so full of stuff that they seem to be tripping over themselves to get in every possible plot twist under the sun. Um, there's a there's a beauty in simplicity, as we've said many times, less is more. Uh, and I think this is another instance. You know, you, you, you have a basic concept and then you sell the story with how you perform in the ring. And the way that they perform in the ring, as you've just mentioned, is highly aggressive um, and feels deeply personal and deeply acrimonious. It's interesting in that in that Brett has really spent, you know, post Rumble the whole of this year settling scores. This year being night five, yeah, yeah, 2019. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Bret Hart being Bret Hart, there's not enough scores for him to be able to settle. <laughs> um, you know, managed to write a whole book and still not settle all the scores. Um, but but uh, but certainly, yeah, in 1995, like you think about, uh, you know, he has to finally put Backlund uh, to bed. Then he has the Lawler thing, which has been going on for like three years by that point. Uh, Go in there. An ODQ match with Owen on Raw. Yeah, so there's like you know he's he's kind of going through these uh, going through these kind of people. We you know Hikushi, you know, kind of get you know with somebody again that, that that got up in Brett's grill. He had to deal with that. So it's interesting in that he's kind of having to really fight and claw his way back to the point where he can actually go after that gold that he he lost through Owen's duplicity. Um, so it's it's an interesting year for Bret Hart. This it's it, it's kind of that that weird time when the the top guy in the company isn't anywhere near the title. Well, it's it's this is the kind of year for Bret. Um, and by the way, on the old score thing, how poetic is it? Where he would end the year when it comes to to revisiting old scores, but we'll get to that. Yeah, show quite. Time. <laughs> um, but um, it feels like, the, and we we've kind of touched on this issue a number of times as well as we've done this series about um you know the the valuable lessons wwe could learn by remembering what actually happened rather than buying into and selling this this folklore they come up with um because it feels like this is a, a as a year for brett a great blueprint for for example any performer who finds themselves in the situation seth rollins was in 2017 as a for instance um where he, you know, because in 2017, obviously, he started off with the Triple H thing, then he did the Bray Wyatt thing, and then in the back end of the year, it was all the Ambrose stuff. Um, and while it would end on a high with, with all of the Ambrose stuff, obviously, for, for a large portion of the year, I mean, the Triple H match, a number of uh, uh, people were very, very high on. Uh, myself, obviously. I know Doc was very high on it. I know you were a fan of it. But it didn't exactly, you know, as is the case these days, um, get quite the props I thought it deserved. Um, and then, of course, until the Ambrose thing, everyone spent the year talking about how he'd failed as a babyface or whatever. Uh, and I guess you can extend that to the back end of, of uh, 2016 as well when he was wrestling Jericho. Um, but it feels like what they did with Bretton this year was is very much a blueprint for when they get a guy who was in Seth's sort of position at that point, you know, where... Um, would eventually work that had been a, had been near the title, had chased the title, was was now in need of dropping down a little bit and then spending some time working his way back to that position. Um, they they with Brett, as you mentioned, they they had this ability to balance. And it, again, it, you can't do this if you don't have that robust character arc for him before 1995, where events bled into one another. You know that's what you've got to get in order to have this kind of a year. But where everything feels like it's it's meaningful and 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 is allowed to then culminate in great, really great matches, um, and feels like not just that you're keeping him away from from the main event, but feels like he's as you said scrapping and fighting and clawing his way back through the ranks to that top 
point where he can convincingly chase for the for the championship again. Um, and obviously, there's a there's a need for top guys to sometimes take a step back. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, WWE don't seem able to quite balance that. And and it's it's Bret Hart 1995s where I think they can they can learn valuable lessons about how to pull it off. No, quite. I mean, they tried to do it Cena um, after the Rock match at WrestleMania 28, um, but of course. It, it kind of we talked about this uh, recently, or, or well, I say recently. <laughs> it'll, it'll be on a forthcoming episode of SCID. It's like the time that you know, it's one of those things where it's like you pre-record something, the time scales go like all sorts of haywire. So look forward to January when you can hear me and Pan discuss this in more detail. But uh, but it's uh, it's something we talked about in the John Cena's 2012. His his Anas Horribilis was was actually a kind of story they kind of fell into by accident because he was having all these matches where he got humiliated by the big show's ironclad contract and John Laurinaitis and Tenzai and God knows what else. Um, but it worked Tenzai, be- because because it was it was John Cena uh, being in a position where he'd lost the biggest match of his life. He wasn't the champion. So he got to this point where he was almost above the championship. But then he lost the match, the big era-defining match. Um, and then he was just kind of cut adrift for a year. Um, and it's, 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 it's not dissimilar to what they do with Brett, really. So I think he's always something that works well when you take a top guy and you're like, OK, you're going to have to earn your crust. Um, it, it, does, it does just work. But as you say, it does need that, that prior existing knowledge of that character. And I think it works well with Cena's character because... You know, he was Mr. Lowell, I win. And then suddenly he was Mr. Oh, I don't. Hmm. I think that the, the, the valuable lesson, because I agree with a lot of what you've said, but obviously with Cena in 2012, I think one of the, the problems people had was that obviously he kept that top spot on the card. You know, when he wrestled Lauren Knights, it was the main event. It was the last match on the show. When he wrestled Ziggler, it was the last match on the I think if you if you dropped it down, because the great thing about Brett, in a, in a strange way, is that they did undervalue him in terms of they weren't afraid to have him, you know, even when he wasn't champion, but he was clearly the top guy in the company still, he was still semi-main eventing, you know, and there's value to be had in that. I think the semi-main event, a bit like, a bit like how we've been talking about these, you know, good matches that aren't great but help make for a great show – it feels like a good semi-main event is a bit of a lost art as well. Um, and, and it's an intangible, you know, I don't think it's something I'd be able to adequately describe. Um, but I, I think it can add a lot to a, to a card. I think WrestleMania 19 is a great example um, where you have like four top matches at the back end and then you sort of lead into that with Sean v. Jericho. Um, and there are various others as well, but um, you need those tandem matches. But I think that the, that with uh, Cena in, in 2012, there would have been um, uh, it would have it would have been a lot more noticeable at the time, I dare say, um, had he not been occupying that top spot on the card every time. Um, and it feels like perhaps WWE need to need to get. It's like they've lost all of the traditional old ideas. This is going to be no news flash to anyone. They've just seemingly lost sight of, and there's 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 no attachment to it anymore. And it's it's a shame, really, um, because if they, because I mean, Seth now, for example, is in the perfect position to have a Bret Hart night five for a few months. Yeah, no, absolutely, I'd agree with that. Um, although it seems like. Um seems like they've, they've kind of rediscovered a little bit what they should be doing with Rollins, so it'd be interesting to kind of monitor that from a distance and see if it's worth jumping in. Well, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> uh, okay, so main event time then. So obviously through the night, as we talked about, the Bulldog uh, gets selected uh, by uh, Cornette and Mr. Fuji to be the partner for, for Yoko. There's a great backstage scene where Gorilla comes and officially sanctions him, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean anything Monsoon does is great. Full it, stop. It, it really is, and it's funny actually because the more I, I I watch these back, the more you see that sort of you know 2015 NXT GM William Regal is basically doing like a Gorilla Monsoon impression. <laughs> <laughs> like and I'm sure he was doing it deliberately as well, <laughs> which is which is great. Um, 
But um, yeah, it's and the, what you said last time as well about how Monsoon has come in on this platform of giving people the best matches, hence why he'd booked this triple header in the first place, and hence why he was determined it was going to take place even if Owen wasn't around. I thought that yes. was really cool yeah. how that fed into it too. Um, so I mean, even even in the authority figure, you have you have consistency of character. Go figure. Yeah, quite. Um, and I really, I really just thought, you know, because actually I I watched this match relatively recently um, as well, and what is really fun about it is just it, it feels like uh, one of those modern, one of those modern sort of celebrity, not celebrity, but you know, like big name thrown together tag matches where you you have like uh, quite a lot of action um, within it, a bit like you know when they did Shield v New Day, you know, it's that sort of like. Uh, that that feel to it you know lots of um cool stuff like there's a lot there's a really cool callback to the rumble where uh you know bulldog uh crotches michaels on the top rope and then yoko kind of sidles over and gives a cheap elbow so that michaels falls down to the apron you know and they did that spot at the rumble um except without yoko being present so there's 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 like a lot of clever stuff in there really um I mean, just to refer back to what I was saying earlier on in the show about Bulldog being the perfect new-gen foil, I think you get to see it very much in action here because obviously um, Yoko, in the in the tag team with Owen, Yoko's the difference maker uh, and, is, and is produced as the difference maker. You know, his stints in the ring tend to be short and they often tend to be decisive. Um, when he's teaming with Bulldog, though, bizarrely bulldog becomes the difference maker because bulldog is the one who can fight both sean and diesel it doesn't matter who you tag in uh, and you see that you know he's um not only does he manhandle sean as as you mentioned um but he's able to fight him because he's he's as quick and as swift and as technically sound uh, i think he does a a stalled suplex on diesel at one point he which does, is yeah. which is crazy especially when you think about the height difference between them um and so you you have you have I mean in in a lot of ways it's a deadlier team than Owen and Yoko um, because of that um, and and what a great way to immediately catapult Bulldog into that into that top tier of talents as well you know uh, and to give him associations because of course Camp Cornette would go on to become a, a main stable of the of the company alongside the Million Dollar Corporation at the time as well and would later it'll go on to transitioning to introduce invader to the company um but yeah i mean i think i think it's it's and that's why i think the plot twist that might threaten to be uh, a little overwritten actually works is because you're essentially substituting in for owen someone who is uh, as good as owen at what owen does but also brings something extra to the table as well and so not only do sean and diesel as the as the good guys now have to um defend their championships against a performer they didn't prepare for. Um, <clears throat> they've got to adjust, excuse me, to an entirely different kind of team as well. So it's uh, without any notice. And, and that's uh, that gives it a, a an inbuilt, ready-made, uh, oven-ready, let's say, <laughs> um, psychology as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's... it's um it's great in that match where you, you kind of have, um, you know, all those moments where sort of Michael is, Michael's is sort of monkeying around and, and, you know, sort of playing the clown and so on and so forth, you know, and there's a bit where they on commentary, uh, talk about how, um, that's all we can do to compete with Yokozuna. He's got, he's got to outside him because of the fact that Yoko's so much bigger. And so they have this whole thing where Michaels gets down, he's going to do the sumo thing and he just slides under Yoko's legs and then drop kicks him or something. Um, it's like there's there's sort of so much clever interaction between them all in the match. And that's that's a great sense of, of nuance that, that um, 
that was always there with new gen commentary, you know, that idea of he's got to outside him, you know, you wouldn't get that today. Instead, what you'd get is, is 20 minutes of commentators arguing with each other as to what the actual story is. So or, leaving you with absolutely no story whatsoever. Yoko's doing a suicide dive and, uh, well, Michael well, slamming Yoko. <laughs> yeah. This is the other thing as well, of course. Um, well, that's a, a rant for another day. Um, in fact, I was just ranting about that this very night as of recording with the doc on uh, other future episodes of SCID, so you can watch out for them as well. But um, yeah, it's it, it adds that extra layer, and, and they always were great at doing that with commentary. People you know, obviously blasted Vince's commentary, but the one great thing about it was that he knew exactly what the story was that was being presented because he wrote the damn thing. So he knew exactly how, what he wanted to convey to the viewer, and he conveyed it, and, it, and that resulted in insightful commentary dialed into the story and that's exactly what you get with what you just mentioned with that idea of sean having to sort of dance around yoko zuna and stuff and that just en- uh, adds to the sense of realism as well and the sense of immersion of of the product as well and that can't be uh, can't be underestimated as well as there was al- there's always as corny as his commentary is um i don't think it's unfair to say that vince's enthusiasm on it was always infectious as well it absolutely was. Um, in fact, the commentary team in this whole show, uh, I think, are uh, extremely um, effective. Like, uh, Lawler is in fantastic form uh, on this show. Like, his hatred of Brett really shines through in the match before. Um, his excitement about Bulldog teaming up with Yoko. His concern for where Owen might be. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a, a great dynamic between them in this um and you know it's it's a reminder again that, that you know it's it's always better when that heel face dynamic it's not necessarily squabbling i think people have misunderstood you know heenan and monsoon's relationship because you can watch a highlights package and it looks like it was just squabbling the whole time and it really wasn't like that like it was always really well timed and you you get that with Lawler and and Vince here you know they're mostly just calling the action and now and again Lawler will get in your jibe yeah no absolutely and I think that there's um I mean first of all there's a lot to be said about it being just two people like when did when did it become the thing that it had to be a three-person booth because three-person p- booths are awful. Well, it's interesting because at the end of New Gen, they do bring Jim Ross well, in, don't quite, they? Yeah. Um, and it becomes three. But then, well, I don't. Once... I don't feel like that ever works. Do you? No, I don't. But once, I think it works reasonably well in that run-up to WrestleMania 13. Like their dynamic between them is, you know, is 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 pretty good. But then once Vince gets outed, um, you know, as the uh, as the boss and the whole montreal thing goes down and it goes to being just lawler and and jr uh, and then later on smackdown of course it ends up being michael cole and uh well michael cole and taz latterly wouldn't it but michael cole and lawler to start with um the, the best thing about the best thing about the vince jr lawler three-man booth <laughs> would be when vince would just completely put down any opinion that jr ventured and tell him it was wrong and that the actual thing was this instead yeah quite uh and also, it's quite interesting, sort of, you know, they, they had JR as more of a, a colour guy to start with, which is yeah. kind of uh, kind of odd when you think, uh, oh yeah, when you think about how he ended up being, you know, this sort of play-by-play legend, but uh, he didn't really uh, didn't really start off being able to do that with, with WWF. It was more like uh, Vince was the established play-by-play guy, and, and JR was kind of almost like the Byron Saxton, wasn't he? He was just this sort of neutral guy somewhere in the middle of of, of, well, of JR and sorry of uh, Vince and Lawler, except his uh, his heel turn, of course. Um, at I mean, the at the when he introduces fake diesel and fake diesel and and fake razor. Although I mean, to be fair, even then on on the actual commentary, um, after he drops a proto CM Punk pipe bomb, by the way, he does, um, <laughs> uh, which I will defend that comparison to the end of the earth. Come and fight me about it. Um, he, he on commentary again it's like you were saying about it being well timed it's so i mean we're getting off track here but um 
it was always it was it wasn't constant you know it would just be every now and then he would drop in a jibe or he would get a bit pissy about something his his tone generally was more hostile uh, but it wasn't like that dominated his discourse like it did when Cole turned heel that interminable time well of course JR actually had two heel turns which uh, the second one of which was in attitude um, and was absolutely one of the worst things you'll ever see because <laughs> it was all like sort of, you know, he'd obviously had, he had to have time off because of his illness and, you know, Cole became the lead announcer in that, in that period of time. And they basically ran this bizarre storyline where JR came back and uh, obviously was, you know, in the storyline. I mean, this must have been a rib that Vince wrote, especially because he knew this is how JR really felt. But, like, how he was, like, bitter about Michael Cole being on commentary. And so they, it, yeah, it was it was really, really bad. And they, they canned it after about a month. But it, it was, it, you know, doubling down the JR yeah. deal to... Because like, yeah, a... they, they went, we didn't lean into it hard enough. That was the problem. Oh, it was, honestly, it's hilarious. I think when me and Maz came across that, we were like, ooh, did not remember this. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> right, so, uh, anything else about the main event? Yeah, I am aware we've probably spent more time talking about Heel JR than the actual main event. It just, just to say, it's, uh, you know, as we were saying, because we've already sort of covered some of it at the top of the show, um, it's, you know, it's predicts uh, a gimmick that they would do many times uh, in later years with the, all the titles on the line. Uh, it's smartly told. It's a bit kooky in its central idea, especially when Owen turns up and gets pinned. But, of course, the reason they do that is because Owen wasn't the sanctioned competitor, so the titles didn't change hands. So, you know, that feeds into why you see Monsoon sanction Bulldog. Everything's got reason behind it. Everything happens for a purpose. It's Chekhov's gun. Uh, you know, you show that because it serves a purpose later. Um, and that purpose then in turn informs the finish. That watertight writing, man, it's it should be easy to do. Um, and then when it's when it's backed up with good, sensible, intelligent, clever professional wrestling that doesn't indulge in the bad habits that now riddle it, um, it being wrestling um, in general, not just WWE, but in general, the actual physical wrestling, um, then what you get is 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 never short of being immensely fun. And this has all of that. And it's got the, the character relationships there as well. The stakes, uh, you know, it's it's a great main event. And, you know, and we should we should, of course, mention um, the fact that, uh, of course, Owen isn't in the match, but still gets penned. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's yeah, that's what I, that's what I mean. Um, but he wasn't he wasn't the sanctioned competitor no so therefore it, it gets discounted yeah it's the uh it's it's the poetic justice of, of owen trying to get away with not being in the match and then turning up for the match anyway quite <laughs> which is just right which is just great but of course i mean bulldog isn't officially a part of camp Cornet at this point is he and then he after this he does become part of it mm. so it's even you know setting up how he came to join camp Cornet. Yeah, it makes yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's just storytelling. <laughs> you know, it's just there on the wall, isn't it? That's the only way to. I mean, it's bizarre that we have to do these shows first of all um, to dispel these ridiculous myths. But second of all, it's it it feels ridiculous that we live in a world where we have to point out storytelling or feel compelled to. Well, it's no, mad, quite because that because that should be wrote like that should just be done. That should just be the thing. That's just wrestling, but for some reason isn't. I think, you know, me and Maz discussed this last week. You know, we are, you know, we are in that sort of uh, sunken place at the moment. And, and actually, you know, when we compared the decades, it was pretty, pretty obvious that, you know, 2006-ish was, was kind of that previous sunken place and a, a time when a lot of people turned off. Um, so it's kind of, it is cyclical. Um well, I think where we, where we've where you and I have started to diverge is I'm I'm pretty much in the same camp as our friend Primetime at this point, where I just I look at the actual wrestling now and I see just nothing but crap, and that means that any issues I have now are so foundational that you know the the discussions that we always have as wrestling fans about better writing and roster positioning stuff uh, at this point I feel are just papering over cracks that might never be resealed. It's a, a good conversation for another time, yes. quite possibly. 
Um, so that was our uh, our review of In Your House three. Uh, we will of course uh, be back next week. Um, is this Survivor Series next time or is it In Your House four? In Your House four, Great White North. Excellent. Uh, which, which of course takes place in uh, Chris Jericho's hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And we'll um, see the pay-per-view debut of Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Goldust both. Uh, well, we had Hunter Hearst Helmsley's pay-per-view debut uh, in In Your House 2. Was it oh, shit, did we? Yeah. Uh, so definitely... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, It was him the... Hang on. Are you Come sure? On. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. He was, in, he was on the... Uh, on the sh- it, we, we had this whole conversation about his debut. All right. <laughs> it clearly made a, made an impression. Hang on, I think it was SummerSlam. Yeah, it wasn't in your house because I've got the notes here and he's not in it my notes. It was Bob Holly. Oh, I remember now. Yes, of course. There's yeah. no wonder I couldn't remember it. <laughs> well, Bob Holly, not his member of the first opponents, but, uh, but yeah. In, so- in your house debut then. Um, yeah, no, quite. And certainly Goldust is a hugely significant uh, addition. And who does he debut against? Marty Janetti. Uh, the goat. <laughs> not, I'm not even being uh, not even being flippant there. Marty Janetti, the goat. <laughs> oh, you Sorry. don't even tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case no one's ever heard me podcast before. <laughs> so, all right, from the right side of the pond, uh, we have been... Uh, looking at In Your House uh, 3, we'll be looking at 4 next week. I hope you enjoyed that show, and we'll see you next time. Bye!